hello, hello. Welcome along to Benchcast. I'm your host, Neville O'Donoghue. Today I'll be talking to award-winning journalist Paul Howard. He'll be telling me all about his brilliant fictional character, Russell Carroll Kelly, and his new book, From Boom Days to Zoom Days. Give it a listen. Enjoy. Paul, how are you? I'm great. I'm really good, yeah. yeah. I suppose the first question I'd ask you anyway is... Um, Covid, how is it treating you? Because I suppose being a writer, do you love times like this where life slows down and you can just concentrate on writing? Um, yeah, in in a sort of perverse way, I would say yes. It's been good for me uh, in that I had, you know, when the when the first lockdown happened a year ago, at that point I had a lot of work to do. I was I was writing two children's books at the time, and I was trying to get the the next Russell Carroll Kelly book finished. Um, and, I, and to be honest, I was beginning to despair of, you know, whether I would actually get the, get all the work done. And that's one thing that it, it sort of forced me to the, to sit at my desk. There's nothing else to do. Um, but having said that, I, I'm, you know, I, I'm, I, it got old for me very, very quickly. You know, I'm really sick of it now. It's, um, you know, Mary, my wife and I, we, we've been lucky that we, we don't know anybody who's who's had it who's been very sick with it and you know our families are safe our friends are safe and you know we haven't had it and and we've both been able to keep our jobs which I know not everybody's that lucky you know we both kept our jobs and we're both working from home um but we miss our lives that and I think that's a, a feeling that, that that's common to most people you know we just miss our lives we miss what it, you you know what it was like just to go out to the cinema to to go to the theater to go out for dinner to see your family you know to have a proper christmas to go on holidays see your friends and loved ones that's we've really really missed that you know and um we were saying the other night that when this ends we've resolved as long as we stay open we're we're not staying in for a year not one yeah. night in the next in the 12th and i don't care if we're just going to, we're going to the pub for a pint or just going to see a friend or something like where i don't think I, we're just so sick of the house at this stage you know so yeah, sick yeah, of being yeah. in. um I, 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 you're not really a rubby man though paul are you i know you i was listening to a few of your interviews you were on off the ball there i think two years ago and i was listening to the, the last interview we did in Kylie's and uh, i know you went yeah. to st lawrence college and i suppose with bench warmers with our website We'd be very much well, like we're into all sports, but football, soccer, Premier League is what we do. Do you follow anyone yeah. in the Premier League, or are you into sports in general? Um, well, Liverpool, I, my yeah. team. You know, like I'm absolutely passionate about Liverpool. Um, it's it's kind of nice since I stopped being a sports journalist. I stopped stopped writing about sport. Uh, God, it's but my fandom more than I could when I was when I had to be objective when I was a reporter you know yeah but I have no objectivity whatsoever when it comes to Liverpool football club you know yeah, yeah. um I was kind of I I was I was um I was the perfect age really for for becoming obsessed with Liverpool when I was a kid because I was born in 1971 and when I was six Liverpool won uh, the European Cup and it was that great Kevin Keegan team, you know, Kevin Keegan was my hero. And then the following year, Kenny Dalglish came in and replaced Kevin Keegan. And, and, and those were the heroes of my childhood. And, um, 
so so yeah it was always it was always liverpool the funny thing is like it, it was easy to follow liverpool when i was a kid it was just so easy to follow them because they won everything and you kind of i know a lot of man united fans are going through this as well you kind of think it's going to last forever yeah. you actually forget that it's that it's cyclical you know and um you know it was hard to follow liverpool for for a lot of the last 30 years but anyway it's it's been hard this season as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm hoping this season is just a blip, as a lot of Liverpool fans are. Uh, yeah, hopefully. And I suppose I I I know you're a sports journalist, and uh, well, you originally were. And um, yeah. I suppose like to try and avoid asking you the same questions that you've been asked previously, because I suppose Paul. But I suppose tell us a bit about your life story. You were born in England, I see. And how did you get into journalism? I was born in England, and yeah, my my mum and dad were Irish. And um, we, I was born in London and um, we moved to Luton when I was probably about four or five years old yeah. and um, had a very kind of Irish upbringing in, in Luton. You know, we, like most of, most of my friends, their names were, you know, O'Shea, Mar, um, Kelly, uh, O'Callaghan there were it's a very kind of Irish community we lived in there were a lot of Irish who lived in um in Luton because there were there were motor factories there you know Vauxhall were there my dad worked for Vauxhall for for a couple of years and um and we went to a, a school that was you know St Vincent's uh Roman Catholic school so it was very very Irish uh, yeah. Catholic upbringing and then my dad in 1979 my dad said if Margaret Thatcher gets into power we're, we're going back to Ireland and um, and he did yeah. we thought he was joking we thought he was saying it the way you know the way um, Americans always say you know if this guy wins the election I'm moving to Canada yeah. we thought it was that kind of a way you know but he really meant it and you know within two weeks I think we came home from school one day and everything was packed in boxes and um dad just had this sense that it, you know England wasn't going to be a happy place or you know a, a, it wasn't going to be a place for um, a man with four children under the age of 10 um, relying on a on a factory wage yeah. uh, to, to, it wasn't going to be a place to bring up children and he was totally right you know because within a couple of years the factory he worked in um, had gone on a three-day week and um, there was a lot of kind of social unrest, you know, there were, there was a lot of kind of riots in Luton and, and that's, dad feared all of that stuff. And I think he saw it coming. I think he saw, he's very, he's very sharp, my dad, you know, and I think he saw what the Thatcherism wasn't going to be good news for us. Yeah. Um, so that's how we came to come back to Ireland. And um, I wanted to be a sports journalist from the time I was, I'd say, I'd say 10 or 11 years old. Like yeah. really, like I never to the point where I never really wanted to be anything else. You know, it was the only plan I had yeah. in life. Um, and you know, I, I would sit down and watch matches, and I'd have like a copy book from school, uh, one of my school copy books. And when the summer came, if you had just started a copy book, maybe you'd use three pages. You could rip those pages out and pull the ones out at the back. Yeah. And then you had a copy book to scribble in for the summer. And I used, I remember when the 1982 World Cup was on, that's kind of the first World Cup that really grabbed my attention. Um, I remember sitting in front of the television and, and writing out match reports, like writing little kind of two paragraph match reports on what I'd seen yeah. and 
I would do the score and the scorers and the minute they scored in and I'd put out the teams, the substitutes, red and yellow cards, all that kind of thing. Yeah. And I was doing that at 10 or 11 years of age. So I was re it's, it's what I wanted to do. And in a weird way, it, it's still what I want to do because everything that's happened to me in the last 15 or 16 years wasn't part of any plan. It's all, it's all happened by accident. Writing books, I never, ever wanted to, never really wanted to write books, um, never wanted to write plays. I had never dreamed I'd write two musicals. Like, you know, yeah, all that's, yeah. that's all, that, everything that's happened since 2005 in my life professionally has just been a, a, a total accident. And one accident has led on to the, to the but, next. But, but it, at heart, I, I wanted to be a sports writer. I, I suppose you're glad, though, Paul, you went that way because I suppose what's very interesting to talk to you is you look at the way journalism has gone. You know, like it's very worrying times now for people. You know, newspapers have gone down. Online has gone through the roof. What do you think? Do you think there's a, a future for, for journalists? I, I, I do. I don't know what that future is. I don't know what it looks like. But people will always want to know the news, no matter what, you yeah. know, and... Even if I think I think the print I think printed newspapers will will eventually die out. You know, there's it's just like you know letter writing or you know it's just it's just one of those things. Um, um, it 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 does. It feels like it's kind of reaching the end of its of its natural life. Uh, yeah. Printed newspapers. Um, so I will miss them. I will just miss them. Great. I still buy newspapers. You know, I still I still go out every morning and buy, you know, the Irish Times, and the Irish Independent and two or three other papers because it's habit forming. But I kind of I know that people under the age of 30, for instance, don't do it. So every year um, that just through natural attrition of life, there's, there are fewer and fewer newspaper buyers, you know. Yeah. Um, but I think what's encouraging is I know certainly with the newspaper I write for the Irish Times that the subscription service has really taken off, especially since especially since COVID, because people are desperate for news and people are at home and they want to read things. And um, but but it. But it's going to be a totally different industry to, to the one I went into. Um, I know, you know, the newspaper I worked for originally, the Sunday Tribune, has has gone. Um, but even towards the end of its life, the thing that re I loved about newspapers was dying out anyway, which was just that energy-filled newsroom. Yeah. Um, the first day... I, I remember the first day I ever walked into the Sunday Tribune newsroom. I, I was writing, I was working at the time for a postcard factory um, in Cabinteely in Dublin called John Hines Limited. Postcards, actually, there's another thing that's kind of gone. Yeah. Nobody sends postcards anymore. John Hind went to the went to the wall, um, certainly as a postcard manufacturer. But I worked there as a kind of dog's body and I was writing captions for the backs of the postcards, 50 word captions and this is after I left school and my dream was to be a sports writer. And I got Southside, the local newspaper, to print a couple of articles I wrote. And I remember bringing them into the office. They shared an office space with the Sunday Tribune at the time. And I remember going up the stairs and walking into the newsroom and all my heroes are there. Right. You know, yeah. like Paul Image, David Walsh um, Gene Kerrigan, Vincent Brown, Gerald Barry. 
uh, Kevin Dawson, you know, the people I bought the Sunday Tribune for every Sunday, you know, and they're all there. And Vincent Brown is screaming at someone, absolutely tearing someone out by the roots. And there's just, there's this nervous tension through the newsroom and everybody was smoking. And there were still old fashioned typewriters in those days, you know, so you can hear, there were computers which actually had quite noisy keyboards as well. But some people were working on typewriters. And I remember just thinking, oh, my God, this is where I want to be. Yeah, you know, yeah, this yeah. was true. But, but towards the end, that was that was gone. There were more people working from home. Newsrooms tended to be just more sedate, I think, you know, and um, a lot of those kind of big personalities, those, you know, had kind of gone like I, I think newsrooms became much younger places actually like a lot of the sort of middle management in newspapers had been kind of redundancied off and this is kind of common right the way through yeah. uh, the newspaper business so you've got a lot of young people there um i remember seeing i remember seeing people in the tribune newsroom with, with yoga mats like you know yeah. <laughs> i remember thinking then the game has totally changed because we used to go to the pub at lunchtime you know yeah. we'd, we'd go to the pub and have two pints and go back and and try to work with like feeling sleepy with two pints of guinness in you but it's just how it was done and 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 the lunchtime pints was replaced by lunchtime yoga yeah. and so it was a calmer, more sedate, younger environment where there wasn't a lot of shouting. There certainly wasn't smoking anymore. Uh, you know, people working from home. Uh, and it was kind of, you could if you'd walked into the Tribune at the end and you didn't know what they did, it could easily have been a kind of, you know, a, 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 an accountancy practice or something, you know, that for, yeah. for the atmosphere of the place. And um, that's just, I suppose that's just one way in which, in which the industry had completely changed. And before we move on to Ross with Carol Kelly, I suppose, what would have been the biggest story you covered? Because a lot of lads asked me to ask you about uh, Michelle, Michelle Smith at the time. Yeah. That was a pretty big story. <laughs> yeah. I, I suppose that was, I mean, that was the biggest, I think, in terms of, its impact in, in terms of its importance, certainly. Um, we had this swimmer who, you know, was the greatest swimmer in the world. It was a, on the, on the surface of it, it was a, it was a great story. Um, I was skeptical about Michelle Smith's achievements, um, probably for about a year to a year and a half before the Atlanta Olympics. Um, I remember Michelle Smith very well in the sort of early 90s. Um, I mean, I would have kind of seen her career as sort of tapering off around kind of Barcelona time. You know, I think she, we all expect her to retire. And and then she came back and then we we heard that, you know, this Eric de Bruyne had, she'd met this uh discus thrower called Eric de Bruyne and he totally revolutionized her training methods and everything. And then, and then he had this adverse, what they call an adverse doping finding, you know, he, he was, you know, so he was convicted of doping and, and to be honest, I just, you know, at the time I just kind of felt well, the, the plot thickens. Um, But I don't think a lot of people were paying attention to Michelle Smith until the Olympics. Um, you know, she she was she was posting a lot of personal bests. I remember that they used to come in on a fat and the, the old fax machine in the Tribune that we the paper would come through and it would yeah. have Michelle Smith swims new new PB and we were hearing all about this and 
there's the Europeans as well. But still, despite all of that, I don't think anybody thought she was going to go to the Olympics and win three gold medals and almost won a fourth, you know, could, yeah. could very well have won a fourth if she hadn't had the mishap with her, with her swimming goggles. And yeah, there were a handful of us um, sports. I wasn't in Atlanta. Um, I kind of, I covered the story from here. Um, quite, I think I was, I mean, I was quite junior in the Tribune at the time, you know, I was about, I was quite young. I was, mid, I think it was about 24, 25. Um, but I went to Holland and I, I, I tried to trace the sto- chase the story down over there. And I was kind of focusing on the Eric de Bruyne angle. And um, I, f- I found these, um, this interview he'd done with a newspaper there where he talked about, it was just after he was banned and he talked about his admiration for uh, Ben Johnson and, you know, expressed views about doping that I would say were were ambiguous and that's being generous towards them you know um so yeah I mean I was I was one of the skeptics um right from the beginning but yeah it was definitely the biggest story I covered I mean it was it was a difficult story to write about because you know most of us get into sports writing because we're sports fans and um we, because we want to be close to the action. I mean, that's certainly why I why I wanted to be a sports writer. You know, I I was a kid who used to hang around the back of Lansdowne Road, um, just to see Liam Brady walk past. Yeah, you know, yeah. after matches, like you know, because I was just in awe of him. I, I think I asked him for his autograph about ten times before he finally gave it to me. He used to just walk past, but we didn't care. Even if he even if he told you to get lost, like it was just to to have Liam Brady tell you to get lost. Um, but. But, but yeah, most of us get into sports journalism. I would say probably all of us because we love sport and, and we want access to it. And then I suppose slowly over time, you realize that you're, you're a journalist first and a sports fan second. And that was, I think that was the moment when the penny dropped for me yeah, that I yeah. couldn't be both. Um, I, I suppose Ross or Carl Kelly then, you started writing it in the Sunday Tribune. Um, I, 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 I actually played Leinster schools myself, but I played with Ross Gray. So we were the country school. Yeah. So I kind of had, yeah. I can relate to you with your chip, you know, because I, I used to be from the country. I'm from you all originally. I used to be like, I'm going to show these Dublin lads as well. But I just love the genius. But what I'd ask you before you go into it, I was a big fan of the Dumbelievables and the way they pulled the piss out of the country fella. And you were doing yeah. the same except for the, the D4 guy. How did you, as the brand started to take off, how did you protect it, you know, that there was no one that came along and tried to copy the idea, you know? A few people did. Like, I remember the Indo did a kind of a, a female version of Ross. Um, and, and and at another time, the, the Indo just did a straight kind of lift of, of Ross. When I was right for the Tribune, they did their own version, who was called something else. Um, I mean, they died pretty quickly because I don't think whoever was writing didn't have, you know, they weren't yeah, putting yeah. the same care and attention into it. Um, as I was, and that's not patting myself on the back or anything, you know, but yeah. I'm glad you mentioned the Dunbelievables there because I just love them. And the time I started writing Ross, it was kind of a golden age for, for Irish comedy and all that stuff rubbed off on me, no question. The, before Father Ted came along, Irish comedy was mostly something we were kind of embarrassed about, you know, like you'd kind of, you see kind of Irish comedy and you kind of cringe a little bit inside. And then Ted came along and then off the back of Father Ted, like you had things like Navin Man, yeah. um, Unbelievable, just, you know, Mary Rosenstock. Tommy was Tiernan. Yeah. 
Tommy Tiernan. And, you know, and I'm, I'm, and I'm talking about the sort of character stuff like Navin Man and the, the, the two fellows at the back of the church um, who don't know when to, when they should, how to bless themselves and that conversation they have. Yeah. And there was, you know, there was Paths to Freedom. Um, there was Bachelor's Walk. There was just really, really smart comedy in yeah. television and newspapers and television newspapers and, and on radio. And that definitely fed into what I was doing. Like, you know, that, that it kind of taught me, Ted especially, that it can actually, you can make, you can make something Irish and good, you know, yeah. and you just have to work hard at it. And um, so, yeah, and that, so that was, that was early on. But the, the, first, the first couple of years that I was writing, Ross, it was really about rugby. You know, it was about schools rugby and it was about sending up that world um that you had an insight into right when you when you played for ross cray just mocking those kids i would have seen it i would have seen a lot of them on the dart and that over the years you know hey, the hey, dude. that story is that actually true paul the one of the it's this is a black rock only carriage uh yes yeah, the rock carriage he said to me this is a rock carriage i was trying i was trying to get on the dart and every carriage was completely full except for the last carriage and it was like seven or eight people in blazers, young guys in blazers on it. And as I went to get on, he put his hand on my chest and said, sorry, dude, this is a rock carriage. And I, like, I was worse. I actually apologized and stepped yeah. backwards and then the doors closed. Um, which kind of says a lot, really, that, that my instinct was to apologize. Uh, because I would have, I, I grew up in a world where Blackrock College kids were told they were going to inherit the earth and yeah. we probably all believed it, you know, and maybe I still do. Um, but at the beginning, it was about sending him up, him up, that guy and his friends, like, you know, yeah. and it was about just how seriously schools rugby was taken and, and how it was kind of like, it was kind of similar to um, the high school football thing in America, you know, that, that the idea of the sort of young teenage athletes as heroes among their peers um, and how, you know, the, the, their their endeavors on the field are, are more important than than their studies in a lot of cases, you know, and and how it kind of accords them social standing to be on the senior cup team and their parents, because I was writing a lot about the mums and dads as well. You know, like, I don't know what it was like in Ross Cray, but like if you get on the senior cup team uh, in most schools in South Dublin, for instance, yeah. there's a there's a social dimension then for the, the parents. So there's a mums group. The senior cup mums have a WhatsApp group, but they also have social events. They go out for dinner together and they go out for lunch together and brunch and all sorts of stuff. And then the dads go and play golf together. So yeah. you can see why being on the senior cup team, it's so important. But I didn't understand any of this until I became a sports writer because I had no exposure whatsoever to, to rugby growing up, which is kind of hard to believe now because rugby is so mainstream. And even, you know, like even my wife who, who has no real interest in sport could name 10 rugby players off the top of her head, you know, because it's just the, 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 I suppose professionalism turned a lot of them into kind of personalities, you know, and turned yeah. them into celebrities. Uh, but when I was growing up, I was sports mad. I would have had, I would have had far more interest in the Northern Ireland football team being in the World Cup uh, than I would have had in the Irish team playing and winning the Triple Crown, for instance, around yeah. the same time. I, you know, it, it's we just never watched it. <clears throat> and when I went to cover schools rugby, 
when I was when I started freelancing at the beginning, when I was still I was still doing the, the day job in the postcard factory. And then I was kind of taking afternoons off to go and do markings here and there. So the classic thing when you were doing markings in those days is you just be they would use kind of schools rugby to to help you cut your teeth. Right. So you, you they'd kind of find out whether you were capable of filing on time to, you know, filing to copy, filing to length, getting the score and scores, getting all the facts right, you know. So they sent me to uh, a match out in Scaries. And um, uh, I, won't, <laughs> I won't say who was playing because it'll give it away. But anyway, uh, afterwards, I got a call from the Indo and I was told, um, can you come in and see the sports editor? And I, I just thought, this is great. Like, they obviously like my one, my one paragraph on the match. <laughs> and I go into the office and he says to me, yeah, we got a solicitor's letter. And I said, right. And he said, over your report. And I said, what? It was only one paragraph long. And he yeah. said, yeah, he said, you gave, you gave the try to the wrong kid. And I said, uh, Jesus, that, that seems a bit heavy. Like I, I was, I was very disappointed myself. Obviously, like I'm yeah, angry. Yeah. Solicitor's letter is a bit heavy. And he said, "Well, he's looking for a uh, an an apology, a retraction, and a clarification." Yeah. So I said, "God," and he said, "Look, do you know anything about this world of schools rugby?" And I said, "No, I don't." And he said, "Well, put it to you this way." He said, the, "That kid you wrote about. Let's just call him Treylock, right?" He said, "That kid you wrote about when he was born." his father put the ball in the crib with him to familiarize him with the shape of a rugby ball, right? He said, as soon as he could walk, the dad was throwing rugby balls across the room at him, like to get him to, to, you know, sharpen his reflexes. He's gone on and he's played junior rugby with little toddling about the place. And then he's gone through school and he's played junior cup rugby. And all the while the dad is telling all of his friends in the golf club or in the Shelburne bar, you know, my son is going to play senior cup for the school one day. And then he finally gets on the senior cup team. And he said in his first match, he, he, he scores this wonder try like runs around three players and, you know, 50 yard, 50 yard run and scores under yeah. the posts. And he said, and you, you prick, you got his name wrong. <laughs> 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 so that was kind of, I think that was when I, I went, all right, the penny dropped. Right. I get it now. Now I know why it's so important. But the yeah. first couple of years, that's what it was about. It was about sending that up. It was about, because yeah, yeah. one of the first episodes, Charles was sending a solicitor's letter to to the Irish Times because Jerry Thornley had had, had spelled his name Rosso Carol Keeley or something like that, and so that's what I was sending up at the beginning. But it was when I stopped writing about rugby when Ross left school, and I stopped, and the column started to be about the Celtic Tiger rather than rugby. That I think it really it really took off. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, I can, I can relate to that because the journalist got my name wrong one day when I scored a try. But um, it's, probably uh, me. Yeah, I was thinking <laughs> I must. I have it at home. I'll try and dig it out. But um, the the other story, yeah, I was listening to Pat Kenny. Uh, I think two weeks ago, and it was very good as well. But the other story I was listening to on my researches is the the one of the I don't give a fuck how I played, just crack open the wallet. I thought that was is there is that true, Paul? Is it? Yeah, but that's completely true. Yeah, yeah, I was covering the schools match. And um, you see, I used to be more 
I, w- I was kind of more interested in what was happening off the pitch than what was happening yeah. on it. I well, was you, fascinated by you, this. You say Maeve Vinci was a big part of your, like, I, I yeah. really like that, that listen to people, you know? Yeah, I met, I met Maeve when I was about 15, and it was such, a, it was such an important meeting for me looking back. My teacher at school sent me to um, a talk in Dunleary. Uh, she was given to people who wanted to be writers and you know, I remember that she explained her modus operandi, how she worked and how she researched. And she said she brought a dictaphone with her everywhere and she recorded bits of conversations and and used those as the basis of of her stories. And so I was doing the same with Ross. I mean, everything, you know, certainly the first two or three years, it was all coming from, you know, I would go to Kylie's and pull up a stool and sit down and listen to listen to two people talking. If I if I didn't know what that week's column was going to be about, yeah. I would just take it from the air around me. And so Maeve was hugely influential on me from that point of view. Um, but, but yeah, so, so, the, so, but I would go to the matches and I would stand in the crowd. And like I said, I would study what was happening. So it was kind of the dads, the early days in the mobile phone with the big brick, you know, the dads would be talking on the phones and the mothers would be wearing like, you know, this really expensive clobber, you know, and sort of six inch heels standing in the mud and, it's scaries and then there'd be just like the teams of like essentially cheerleaders they were kind of yeah. mostly anvil girls and like throwing themselves at these you know horrifically ugly rugby players in a lot of cases you know and it was just i just kind of thought this is this is just really interesting it was kind of the pageantry of it the songs the fact that no one ever really seemed to leave school. Like the dads were still going back and supporting the school team yeah. 40 years later and joshing with uh, the guy, you know, the, the, the fellow they work with in the solicitor's office because one's yeah, Mary's yeah. and the other Michael's, you know, they're still essentially aligned to those schools all these years later. And I just, I thought it was, I, I mean, I mocked it, but I, I liked it. Like, you know, I thought this is fantastic. It's just, it and the, and the supporters, like if you go, if you go to a black rock match, and you listen to the songs, it starts an hour before kickoff and they don't stop singing for the whole match. And then yeah. and then they're still going an hour afterwards as they're leaving the ground, even when they lose. And so there's kind of passion and color and all of those things that you don't actually get a lot. You get a, you know, you get a club rugby match or you get it at, um, uh, you know, Munster matches, Leinster matches, Ireland soccer matches, um, there aren't that many, and, and GA matches, of course, but there aren't that many occasions, um, you know, when you see that kind of colour. That and it was really, it was just so new to me, um, as well, because I hadn't been exposed to it before. But as I was leaving the ground one day, I did hear that conversation that you mentioned there, and a, a kid to his dad, "I don't give a fuck how you think I played. Just crack open the wallet." <laughs> um, and it was amazing to be honest like that's kind of that's the dynamic between ross and his father right there that's where i got that you know i just thought that but yeah my, my father wasn't a violent man but my god if i'd spoken to him like that I, yeah. i'm sure i'd be still orbiting the earth today you know yeah, yeah. but dynamic of this this father who worships his son and the son just looks on the dad as this annoying atm <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. It was just great. Yeah. Um, I suppose then the other thing I'd ask you is about 
I suppose the players then, like I see you did a book with Gordon Darcy a few a few years ago and like what did they think you pulling the piss out of him and what an honour it was to have a, a plaque uh, put up in Kylie's for you. Yeah, yeah. Well, the plaque was great. The, the plaque was such a thrill for me yeah. because um, Kylie's, I wanted, I wanted Ross to have a kind of nags head or a Winchester club, you know, I want him to have a headquarters where, where, where you know, the stories would happen the funniest way he would meet his friends and that was that became his kind of base really um and i got a phone call i i, I made some joke column one week in the irish times where i said um you know all the, the, the ross was talking about how uh, he essentially pissed his talent away into the trough in kylie's you know or i yeah. think somebody said it of him george hook said you know never in the history of of schools rugby has so much talent being pissed into the trough and Kylie's of Donnybrook. And of course, Ross took this as a compliment. God, you see what George Hook said about how talented I was. But anyway, I, Ross said in the column something like, you know, Jesus, you think they put a plaque over the over the urinals, you know, just to commemorate it. And Mary, who who was the, who was the owner of Kylie's with Pat at the time, um, she rang me one, one Monday night and said, what are you doing? And I said, nothing. She said, uh, do you fancy popping in? I said, yeah, what's up? And she said, we've put a plaque over the toilets and we want Bernard Jackman is going to uh, unveil it. Yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> so it's like there's been loads of strange days in my life since I started writing Ross. Lots of unexpected things have happened, but that was probably the strangest of all. Me, uh, the, the Pat and Mary, the husband and wife team who ran Kylie's for so many years, and Bernard Jackman in the jacks. <laughs> they had a little curtain over it. Yeah. The two of us pulled, pulled the strings of the curtain parted. It was just, it was funny, you know. Um, yeah. But the players like it, you know. Like m m Most of the, I'd say at the very beginning, the players were going, "What? what is this? And I didn't put my name to it for about three years. So at the beginning, um, People were speculating as to who was writing it. And for a while, um, Brian O'Driscoll was the chief suspect. And this was before this was before I knew who Brian O'Driscoll was. This was kind of 1999. Um, but Ross in the column, the weekly column in the Sunday Tribune, was doing a sports management course in UCD. And so was Brian at the time. Yeah. So all of the stuff I was writing about was stuff that Brian was actually living at the time. So we used to, I used to get calls from people in UCD saying, who, tell me, who, who's writing that column? Is it a guy called Draco? And um, who subsequently I discovered was Brian O'Driscoll. Yeah. Um, but most, I think, I think over the years, pretty much every rugby player in our, who's, who's kind of well-known in Ireland has been either featured in a scene or had a reference to them in it. And... Um, I've never had any kind of negative reaction. They, you know, most of the players have actually come in to see all the plays as well. You know, yeah. um, Johnny Sexton. Johnny Sexton came to see um, uh, between Fox Rock and a Hard Place, which was the second play. And what Johnny didn't know is that he um, he featured in it, like he was mentioned a few times. So the story is they get Tiger kid, the O'Carroll Kelly family get Tiger kidnapped, and Ross had won this competition to take a kick from the halfway line at the RDS. And because they were tiger kidnapped, he wasn't able to leave the house, you know, and he's absolutely convinced 
that somebody has arranged this to stop it, to stop him kind of being the star of the moment, you know. But there is a there is a bit in it where uh, he manages to get the gun off the gunman and he holds it to the gunman's head and he says, "Did Johnny Sexton send you?" And Johnny Johnny was sitting uh, with his wife Laura in the front of the balcony. And there was about six references in Act One to Johnny Sexton, and everybody kept turning around and looking back at him, uh, sitting at the balcony. And Johnny's actually very shy, which yeah. is kind of unusual quality in in somebody who does what he does. Um, but Johnny Johnny had to leave at the interval. It was just too, <laughs> it was too uncomfortable for him. Uh, but most of the lads have been like you know Brian O'Driscoll has been to see I think all of the plays and you know Gordon Darcy you mentioned I, I've written a, um, we're working on our third children's book together now and uh, Gordon Gordon's been been in to see all the shows as well but I, you kind of said this earlier but I'll ask it again did you how did you ever think it had explode as much as it did like you know like when did you realise that you ran to a winner here um there was one day I was asked to go out to UCD to read and I hadn't put my name to it yet. Nobody, <clears throat> nobody knew who I was. Um, well, I mean, I was a sports journalist in the Sunday Tribune, but nobody really knew that I was writing it. And I was kind of aware that to promote the books, I was going to have to, you know, I was going to have to do things like this interview. Um, yeah. I was going to have to go on, you know, uh, the Late Late Show or, you know, Pat Kenny or Matt Cooper show, whatever. So I kind of had to step, I had to drop, lose my anonymity. So I was sort of stepping out of it. And I was asked by the students union in UCD uh, if I do, uh, if, I, if I just read, if I just come out and just read in a lecture hall. And I kind of thought, well, fair enough, you know, and I, I didn't think anyone would show up. Yeah. And when I got out to UCD, uh, there were so many people there, the fire officer uh, closed the venue down, right? So right. for me, this was my U2 where the streets have yeah, no yeah. moment, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we are closing the location down. And uh, and that's when I realized like, you know, God, people people are really reading this, you know? Yeah. And, and this is kind of pre-internet days, you know, there, there wasn't, Russ didn't have an online presence. So, and the Sunday Tribune was, um, you know, it, I think it was the fifth selling Sunday newspaper. So, you know, it, I think it sold 60 or 70,000 copies a week at that stage. So it wasn't a massive newspaper. <clears throat> so it kind of had a cult following, I think, at the beginning. But especially in UCD, because I was writing a, bit, a lot about UCD, I think everybody in UCD was, was reading it. Charlotte Regan said to me recently that when he was in UCD, it was it was like book fast in that everybody had it in their in their apartment, you know, or yeah. wherever they were staying. Sure. That we never went to an apartment that didn't have the first Ross O'Carroll Kelly book or the second one. Um, so I suppose that was that was the moment. And then we moved it out of the sports section because it had stopped being about sport. So we moved it out of the sports section onto the back of the news section. And then that was, I think that was the moment when it, you know, it really, people actually, it became kind of part of people's conversations to describe yeah. some, the Ross O'Carroll Kelly generation or to describe a Ross O'Carroll Kelly type character. Um, yeah. So I suppose that was around 2000, 2001. Yeah. 
And what's uh, what's 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 next for Ross or Carol Kelly? Like I know, I know you did shows, and because I remember I was listening to on an interview, and you did a show in Cork, and you were you weren't sure where the Cork crowd get the joke. But like, would you ever try and go further afield or do something in England? Not with Ross. I mean, I I don't. I suppose. I mean, I've been writing it for twenty three years now if it was going to break England I think it would have happened by now yeah, you know yeah, yeah. it's funny there's I mean I sent it I sent it to friends of mine in England and look they get the they get the rugby jock thing right because they kind of invented the rugby jock thing um but that the I think a lot of the kind of cultural reference points are, are are too parochial they're too kind of like they don't know what Donnybrook Fair is right yeah they don't know what Club 92 is they don't know what Kylie's is they don't know you know when I talk about somebody in Brown Thomas they don't they don't understand that you know they would have you, their own references would you, would you ever think of creating another character uh, Paul or are you just happy with Ross like yeah I'm happy with Ross I mean I I suppose I did have a, a choice to make about 15 years ago but I could kind of you know, I could dumb down the Irishness of the character to try to to kind of get a market from abroad, but I just felt I would just be blanding him out. I I, I just didn't want to do that. Like I kind of feel like it's it's an Irish thing. It's it's kind of our thing. It's our joke, um, yeah. and I didn't really see any need to do it. Um, you know, do you know what's funny? I remember seeing the book in. There's a big Waterstones in. Um, where is it in London? It's in Trafalgar Square. No, sorry, it's near, it's Piccadilly. There's a big Waterstones in Piccadilly. And I was in there one day and I saw it. They had one of my books on the shelf. It was really real thrill for me to actually see it outside Ireland on a bookshelf. So I folded down uh, the corner of one of the pages at the back, just the back pages, you know, those blank pages at the back. I just folded it down, put a little crease in it. And um I went back three years later and the, the book was still there, <laughs> <laughs> which kind of tells me everything, you yeah, know, yeah, yeah, yeah. but there's be, there was one attempt. Um, there was one attempt to translate it into, into Russian. And uh, they, at a book fair, I think it was the Frankfurt book fair, a Russian publisher uh, decided they wanted to buy the rights for the orange market chip frappuccino years and, and, translate it into Russian. And there was a grant available at the time, it probably still is, uh, from the Irish government to uh, overseas publishers who want to translate Irish works of literature into foreign languages. So they got the grant and um, I, I was getting these kind of like four times weekly phone calls from, um, what was his name? Alexander Golev was his name. He was translating it. And he'd be asking me, it wasn't someone, there was some of the language he found difficult to understand. Um, but mostly it, I was explaining to him what, you know, like I said earlier, like what, what's the significance of Club 92? What's the significance of, um, you know, Avoca Hamweavers? Like what, why, you know, when you talk about women meeting in Avoca Hamweavers, what does that mean? What does that sound like? So I was explaining all of this stuff to him and he managed to get his head around all of the, those things. But the one thing he couldn't buy uh, that the Russians couldn't buy is the idea that so a kid who played rugby could be a hero among his peer group. So yeah. they changed it to basketball in the Russian edition. And because it wasn't a faithful translation, they lost, they lost the grant. And the book never appeared in the end, but they 
did send me a copy of the cover, which was hilarious because it, <laughs> it was a waterfall um, in the west of Ireland, somewhere in the west of Ireland, there's a waterfall with a cottage that was almost superimposed into the photograph, this little cottage, and then a rainbow. It's kind of like a Maeve, you know, I think they, it was like a Maeve Binchy book in translation. I think they probably used the same cover for all Irish books, no matter <laughs> what they're about. And uh, I suppose final two questions, Paul, is that um, um, I suppose the Lion Store was announced today. What's your opinion on that? And did Ross ever make it on the Lion Store? Oh, God. Um, to be honest, I, I don't really have an opinion on it. I mean, yeah. I never... Uh, rugby was never was never my sport, even though I've written twenty five books. About it now. Oh yeah, um, uh, Ross is absolutely devastated that Johnny Sexton didn't make it, though you know, and um, he uh, it's just borne out absolutely everything Ross has ever said about Warren Gatland since since Gatland left Ross out of the Irish schools team back in the day or the Irish team back in the day. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, he's caught. Cool. He's, he's quite shocked at the moment I'm working on the third uh, book in the in the Gordon's game series and the first one Gordon went and played for Ireland the second one he played for Leinster and this one which we're finishing at the moment he goes and plays for the Lions right. and um been talking to Gordon a lot about the Lions and the significance of it and because I'm 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 dubious about the Lions um just like I'm dubious about the the European team and the Ryder Cup, you know, I, I just yeah. find it very difficult to buy the fact that they're representative of the world I live in, I live in or something. You know, I don't know what it is, but I, I, yeah. I'm dubious about it. But hearing Gordon uh, talk with such passion about the Lions, like it's kind of, it's kind of opened my eyes a little bit to it, I have to say. Okay. And your new book then, uh, Paul, it's uh, From Boom Days to Zoom Days. And I suppose finally, like your, your partners with Penguin, is it like, how do you always keep it at the top, your books? You know, how do you keep it that people keep wanting to come back to it? Well, I have a very good editor um, called Rachel Pierce, and we're, 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 we're good friends, but, but not so good friends that she's frightened to tell me when something just isn't up to standard. And that's that's the mark of a great editor for me. Like, you know, just because the last book did really well, yeah. it doesn't mean you can take a book off. You know, you know, we'll, we'll go easy this year. It doesn't have to be as good as last year. And she's always kept me cognizant of that, that when it's a series like this, and I'm a big fan of, you know, of things like the, the Jeeves and Worcester books, these long series, the James Bond books, um, the, the Flashman novels, um, when the longer a series goes on, the better the books have to be, because if somebody's been getting your book every year as a Christmas present for the last 15 years, if you write a bad one, if you write one that disappoints, uh, they're going to say straight away, he's gone off the boil yeah. or, you know, as soon as as soon as I write a book that wasn't as good as the one before, then I'm in trouble. Um, so I'm conscious of that. And. I suppose without wanting to sound trite, it, it's just, it's about hard work. You know, it's, it's about getting up in the morning and uh, I get up early. I work, I start work at five most mornings and, and I sit and I'm still sitting there at five in the evening, you know? And uh, so, so I've never forgotten that it's work. Like I've never kind of, I've never taken that for granted. I've never taken my readers for granted. Like I yeah. know, 
I know I have to make them laugh in every paragraph yeah. or they're not going back again, you know? Um, so I suppose that's the answer. No, I, I love that, Paul. Uh, the secret is just hard work up at five in the morning. It's very interesting to hear. Um, finally, I do this for all my guests, Paul, is uh, 60 second questions. For, uh, all right. Throw questions at you, see how you get on. Oh, so, <laughs> favorite, food? Yeah. favorite food? Uh, cheese. Uh, favorite golf course? Uh, don't have one, but I like step aside pitch and poke course. Okay. Westlife or boys zone? Uh, boys zone. Favorite thing to do on your day off? Um, walk. Favorite film? Star Wars. Go to karaoke song? Um, Sweet Caroline. Uh, proudest moment? Um, I think winning sports journalist of the year in 1998. Yeah. Favorite chocolate bear? Double decker. Biggest fear? Um, ketchup. <laughs> what is something? <laughs> Sorry, that's good. that. What is something you've never tried but want want to do? <laughs> I want to go. Uh, I want. I don't know what it's called, but I want to be put in a cage and lowered into the sea uh, where there are sharks. Okay. And tea or coffee? Coffee. Okay. Paul, thanks a minute for doing that, and I wish you all the best in your next few books Absolutely. and everything, everything else is coming. Okay. Thanks so much, Neville. Thanks for talking to me as well. Thanks, okay. Paul. Thanks for that. Talk to you. Bye bye. And thanks for listening. And thanks again to Paul Howard for coming on. I must say, really nice guy and he deserves every bit of success that comes his way. You heard it there, up at 5 in the morning till 5 in the evening. Success doesn't come easy and uh, some of his stuff is absolutely brilliant. You can check out his books, his podcasts, his shows and uh, I wish him every success. And uh, yeah, that's, um, that's, that's Paul Howard for you. And make sure to tune in again next week where I'll be interviewing someone else from the world of sport. And until until next time, remember you can get this podcast on Spotify uh, and wherever you get your podcasts. And until next time, I'm Neville O'Donoghue and I'm out of here.